Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Vulgar History Season 3. My name is Anne Foster, and this is a feminist women's comedy history podcast. I might have said those words in a different order, but the meaning is still there. This is where we look at women from history, often lesser known women from history, and often, especially this season, women from English history. So this season is titled how to lose a queen in nine days and we're inching closer and closer to lady jane gray because i guess the subtitle for the season is the lady jane gray situation so we're looking at nine women one of whom is jane who is technically a girl and looking at how just what the world was like and what led up to her weird nine day reign and then what the aftermath was after that and part of this whole saga and we've touched on this, especially in the last couple episodes, is the whole Protestant thing. So I want to give a gigantic caveat that this is a women's history podcast. It's a social history. So we're really looking at the personalities of the people, theorizing what their psychology was, what they were thinking, really sitting there with them. This is not a theology podcast. So I'm not going to focus a lot on the details of religious beliefs of the people in this. And I'm mentioning that especially now because today we are looking at Protestant martyr Anne Askew, who I just said she was a martyr. So guess what? She's going to be killed for her beliefs. So religion is a huge part of her whole situation, but I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty what specifically she believed but we'll talk about it I think hopefully enough that you can understand the trajectory of her story but my angle on this is not the specifics of the religion it's going to be more on her and what her life was like and the choices that she made although that being said I do want to just mention that for all of the religious battles were going on during this era which is the mid 1500s in England It was partially, obviously, about religious beliefs and religious freedom and that sort of thing. But it was also about power and control and who got to be in charge of what and really struggling to retain the status quo, which was a very hierarchical system where there were, we're still in an era where the people in charge of the churches, especially now that Henry VIII removed the Pope from the equation, he was enriched by the churches. So it's not like religion in this time and place was squeaky clean in general. The people who had different religious agendas also had their own schemes they were doing. But that's not who we're looking at today. We're looking at someone whose religious belief was actually quite straightforward. And that is a woman who is named Anne Askew. Now her last name is spelled A-S-K-E-W, like the word askew. But I asked on Twitter and two people 
both said they think it's pronounced Askew. And I think that's how I've heard other people with that as a surname pronounce their surname. That being said, uh, there's no recordings of people from the mid-1500s. And who knows how they pronounce things? They wrote things really chaotically, just like making up spellings of everyone's name constantly. So we're going with Anne Askew. It might be Anne Askew, but that's a pronunciation choice I have made for today. So Anne Askew was born in, you'll, you know, the same old thing. She was born in either 1520 or 1521. People kind of didn't care about birthdays back then. She was the middle child of a family of landowners. And here's the thing about her. Unlike most women of her era, and frankly, most men, most people of this time, she was the author of a book outlining her first person account of life in Tudor England. So instead of just being like, well, this one ambassador said that she looked like this, or 20 years later, somebody saying like, I'm pretty sure she meant this when she was talking to me. She actually left effectively a memoir. So this is a lot of her own, her own words, her own explanation of what her life was like. So that's new and thrilling for this podcast. So her life was anything but ordinary, but the fact that she even created a book just allows us a fuller understanding of her life than even what could be gleaned about many of the queens and princesses living at the same time. And the fact that she wrote it down shows kind of what a sort of person she was. She's someone who wanted this to be seen and read and known about. So she was born again, 1520 or 1521, and her life, as so many in the season of this podcast, ran sort of parallel to that of Henry VIII's six marriages. So she was born about midway through Henry VIII's first marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And Askew was married around the same time that Henry VIII married his third wife. And she died when he was married to his sixth wife. So her life was spent during a time of enormous religious upheaval. And she was, and that all kind of started when she was 10 years old and Henry VIII switched the national faith from Catholic to the Church of England. So quick religious history aside, Anglicanism, a.k.a. Episcopalianism, a.k.a. the Church of England, diverges from the Catholic Church in a few key ways, most notably on the issue of transubstantiation. What is transubstantiation? This is the belief that bread and wine turn into the body and blood of Christ during church services. Catholics believe in it, and Anglicans do not. Anne Askew was a believer in a kind of... So this is the Church of England. So the Church of England, especially at the beginning, especially under Henry VIII, was really similar to Catholicism in the sense of... I talked about this in one of the previous episodes, but there's still you know, a priest in robe. Mass was, I think, still said in Latin. They had a lot of fancy, elegant, ornate decorations up around the church. Like, it was made to look really luxe and really wealthy. Versus, there was a whole bunch of other Protestant religions coming up. For instance, Martin Luther believed in a similar sort of Protestantism to what Anne asked you was about. So he and she, not that they knew each other, but they did not believe in transubstantiation. She also did not believe in the hierarchy of the church with, 
even with no pope, she didn't believe in like bishops and priests and that there should be any people between you and your relationship with God and the Bible. Purgatory is another thing that she and other Protestant people didn't believe in. Purgatory is the place between heaven and hell. And she did not believe in the excesses of either Catholicism or Anglicanism. So all of the, you know, expensive shoes and like velvet curtains and gold stained glass windows and stuff. She just thought church should be in a plain white room with no decorations. And it should be all about one person and their relationship to to their faith. So part of that is that you would read the Bible yourself because the whole thing about church mass being said in Latin is not everybody knew Latin. So you had to go through a priest to be able to even hear parts of the Bible, but she wanted it to be in English so people could read it themselves and come to their own decisions. And this approach, you can imagine, would challenge the strict hierarchy of the Catholic and Anglican ministers and priests, etc., because that challenged their whole power if nobody had to go through them. So she was fa- her faith was one in which people were encouraged to develop their own personal relationship with God, one not supervised or restricted by clergy or ministers, and that the written word of the Bible was the only law they should follow. So that's just a little background, backgroundy information for what's going to happen later. So Anne Askew was well-educated for this era in general, and for a girl also. She got access to more education than most would have. She was extremely intelligent and scholarly, not unlike the two Catherines who we looked at in the last two podcasts. She had older brothers who studied at Cambridge University. It was likely partly their influence, which instigated within her a lifelong curiosity about religion. So just picture a family, everybody breaking bread around the table and just having these debates and discussions about very intellectual debates about religion and faith. So Anne spent much of her time considering and memorizing the Bible, and her religious faith was of paramount importance to her. She was one of several siblings and half-siblings raised together, including an older sister named Martha. Side note, that's the first Martha I can recall coming across in any of these stories. I'm always excited when someone's called something different. Uh, When Anne was about 15 years old, Martha died. I'm not sure of what, but there's lots of gruesome diseases going around at that time. And because Martha died, Anne inherited her sister's betrothal. So Martha was supposed to marry this man named Thomas Kime, K-Y-M-E. But when Martha died, Anne was the younger sister. And surprise, you get to marry this guy because the whole marriage being a way to join two families and fortunes together, etc. So Anne Askew did not like this. She did not want this. But despite her strong will and fiercely independent spirit, she was still a teenage girl in the 16th century, and she wasn't able to avoid this marriage, although she did try. Apparently, her father had to physically force her into consenting to the match. So like, literally carry her there or that sort of thing. The pairing between Anne and Thomas was troubled from the start because Thomas Kime was a devoted Catholic and she was very much not. And Thomas was also from a sort of traditional women should be seen and not heard school of thought. So Anne's very um, independent nature, 
e.g. she didn't want to change her last name to his in the 1500s she was like she knew what she wanted and she was not afraid to say it so in the midst of this unhappy marriage english law changed regarding what types of religious practices were permitted from 1538 till 1543 roughly the entire period of anne's marriage to thomas kime it was permitted for english subjects to read the bible on their own and to attend bible studies during this period newer sects of protestantism like the one that anne followed began to flourish around england but in 1543, the law was changed so that no women or men below the rank of gentlemen were permitted to read the Bible on their own because, you know, they might come up with their own thoughts. Uh, rather than its intended effect of discouraging evangelical practices, and I just want to clarify too, the term here, actually, let me just look this up. The term evangelical has certain connotations in the year 2020 that are different from the connotations that it was. So the term evangelical derives from the Greek word euangelion, meaning gospel or good news. Technically speaking, evangelical refers to a person, church, or organization that is committed to the Christian gospel message that Jesus Christ is the savior of humanity. So here's from the Atlantic. So the thing about evangelicals is that there's not a single authority like the Roman Catholic Pope or the Mormons have a first president. Um, so there's not someone in charge of evangelicals. There's all kinds of denominations, churches, and organizations. So in the 1500s, Martin Luther used the Latinized form of the word evangelium to describe the non-Catholic churches birthed by the Protestant Reformation. So... It was just, it was sort of like, probably the way that I'm using Protestant, potentially incorrectly, is what they meant by evangelical. But it meant somebody for whom religion was a really personal thing, um, is very important to them, and they didn't go through any higher authority other than God for it. So this law changed so that people wouldn't be able to read the Bible themselves, except for rich men, because they wanted to stop all of these little Protestant sects from popping up. Anne Askew felt moved when this happened. So remember, she'd spent her whole life reading and memorizing the Bible. So she had the whole Bible memorized. And so she decided that she, it was now her job, if other people weren't allowed to read it, that she would recite passages to other people who weren't allowed to read the Bible on their own. Because of this, her awful husband, Thomas Kime, kicked her out of their house because he... They didn't get along anyway, but this was, to him, such a horrible thing for her to be doing. And then, Anne Askew became the first woman to petition for divorce on scriptural grounds, basing her request on Bible passages, which, you know, she had memorized, which she felt dictated that women married to godless men should leave them. And that's kind of the other thing about her approach to religion slash the Bible, is that it was also saying, like, the only laws that I need to obey are the ones literally in the Bible. And she's like, and the Bible says this, so therefore, here we go. In order to get this divorce, she first brought her request to her local court. But they refused her, probably because divorce just wasn't a thing at the time. So she was like, no big deal. I'll just go to London and plead my case to literally Henry VIII. Now, while Henry VIII is now, these days, often thought of as having divorced three of his wives... 
In fact, his marriages to Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, and Anne of Cleves had all ended in annulment, not actually divorce. So divorce was just kind of not a thing anyone did. But still, Anne Askew is like, guess what? I know what the Bible means, I have it all memorized, and I'm pretty sure I can convince him to let me divorce my husband who is awful. And if you're like, well, how can she just go see the king? Here's the thing. So she's able to book an appointment to see the king because her family's her family had numerous connections to royal court. Her father, William Askew, was a gentleman of the royal court. And actually, fun fact, her father had been a member of the jury who had convicted Anne Boleyn's alleged lovers of treason and adultery a few years before. One of her brothers was the king's cupbearer, and another of her brothers was a gentleman of the king's privy chamber. So the Askew family was high up there in terms of people who Henry VIII was interacting with. So the combination of all of these men were able to get Anne's name put on a list of appointments, and she headed over to the royal court to plead her case. Unfortunately, perhaps not surprisingly to us, Henry VIII did not agree with her interpretation of the Bible and would not grant her dispensation to divorce her husband. In fact, her religious fervor and her passion and enthusiasm about evangelical-style religion was so obvious, and this was sort of a threat to the king slash the government. That's why they had passed that law about not being allowed to read the Bible. So Henry VIII assigned a spy to follow her and report back to him if he saw her doing any heresy. And... Anne Askew was like, you know what, I'm just going to stay in London and not go back to my awful husband because this is where I feel like God wants me to be, which made it even easier for the spy to keep an eye on her because that was a super crowded place where he could blend into the background. What the spy would have seen was Anne, who at this point was just 21 years old, who spent hours each day in prayer, and she became quickly popular among the Protestant scholars of the time. She's friendly with several high-profile Protestants, all men, some of whom were connected to Henry VIII's wife, Catherine Parr, who we talked about last time, who we know had sympathies for the Protestant evangelical movement. So she was just, it's like her childhood writ large, just getting to hang out, um, preach, debate scripture with other people. She was just preaching on the streets by day, debating biblical philosophy by night, as she was young and beautiful and charismatic, she became popular as a gospeler, a street preacher. She was apparently just as comfortable preaching to peasants as to the nobility because she had those connections. Like her family was rich-ish, so she'd be comfortable there, but she's comfortable with other people too. Clearly she had found her life's calling, but this was a dangerous thing to be doing in London in the middle of religious tension when the king has sent a spy to watch you. So by June 1545, Anne Askew was among a group of Protestants arrested for heresy. They were released due to lack of evidence and witnesses, but then she was caught up in a raid again one year later in March 1546. She was questioned for hours by a man named Edmund Bonner, whose nickname was Bloody Bonner, because he was known for his ruthless persecution and questioning of suspected heretics. And knowing what we do about Anne's personality, her outspokenness, her faith, um, her knowledge of the Bible, it's easy to understand how this questioning wound up taking hours and hours because she liked to talk and she could talk and she loved debating. So she was held in prison for 12 days and then released, but with a catch. She was sent back to live with her husband, 
who she hadn't seen in a year she'd been living in London. She had to go back to the countryside, away from all the people who she wanted to preach to. Um, And this was not what she wanted to do. So I think you know her well enough to know that she refused. And instead, she stayed for a short time with one of her brothers outside the city before sneaking back into London to do some more gospel work. By this time, the climate was now even more fraught for Protestants. And this was because, this is where we overlap with last week a little bit, some of the king's top officials were obsessed with proving that Catherine Parr, the king's sixth wife, was secretly a heretic as well, because they didn't like her. Catherine had put a target on her back prior to even being married to Henry when she had criticized legislation that said people couldn't study the Bible. So that had people thinking like, oh, who's this woman who says what she thinks? And what she thinks is evangelical Protestantism. So in opposition to this law, the law that people can study the Bible on their own, Catherine Parr had hosted Bible study groups with her ladies-in-waiting, a.k.a. the Renaissance Reformation Girl Squad. And at some of these meetings, they invited evangelical preachers to speak for them. These facts were known. People knew that Catherine Parr had done all these things, but it wasn't enough to arrest literally the queen at this point. But the queen had enemies, and they wanted to bring her down. So they enacted a plan to arrest sort of low-level, less important Protestants and torture them until they confessed that they were in league with Catherine Parr and that Catherine Parr was secretly a Protestant. Now, why were the Protestants seen as such a threat? It was effectively, again, this is not theology podcast, the evangelical faith was predicated on everyone having a personal relationship with God. No middleman like a priest or a bishop was needed to interpret the text of the Bible. Everyone could look to their own heart and to the Bible to learn how to live. This meant that if that was your belief, then you might not be respecting or following the instructions from powerful government and church officials. And that made them, this whole group, all these people who believe this way, a threat to society in general. And so it was that Anne Askey was arrested for a third time, again, part of a larger group of evangelical Protestants who were arrested on the king's orders. The thing is that among her many professional acquaintances, Anne had had some dealings with Catherine Willoughby, one of the queen's ladies-in-waiting, who we talked about a couple episodes ago. And Catherine Willoughby was a major supporter and benefactor of the evangelical movement. And Catherine Willoughby was good friends with Catherine Parr. And so they were hoping by arresting Anne Askew that she would say, yes, I had dealings with Catherine Willoughby and Queen Catherine Parr, so they could then arrest those other richer women. So they hoped, that's what they hoped, that Anne Askew would reveal the Queen's secret religious practices in order to save her own life. But guess what? Anne Askew uh, was not going to do that because this was her her life's work. She wasn't going to sacrifice that. She wasn't going to, to name names. She wasn't going to put anybody else in danger. So first they tried flattering her, acting like her friend. When that didn't work, they tried to change her mind about transubstantiation, but she would not have her mind changed. So finally, the lieutenant of the Tower of London was instructed to torture her in hopes that she would name Catherine Parr or Catherine Willoughby or other prominent women as secret Protestants. But the thing is that this is unprecedented before or since, because at the time it was illegal to torture a woman, 
and, other than Anne Askew, no woman was recorded before or since of having been physically tortured. So the illegality of the request caused the lieutenant to refuse the instruction. Let me see. So someone, the king? Not sure. Anyway, somebody higher up instructed the lieutenant of the Tower of London to torture her. The lieutenant of the Tower of London was like, "Mm, no, sorry, that's illegal. But, and then he left. And in his absence, other people, other Tower of London staff members, took on this task. They subjected Anne to torture on the rack, which is where you stretch the human body past the point. It can actually be stretched. The lieutenant petitioned the king to put an end to the torture, but they didn't get the instruction that they were allowed to stop it until after Anne had already been subjected to a lengthy amount of suffering on the rack. She fainted from the pain, was revived, and continued to be questioned, but she would not name names. These are some of the writings herself from Anne in her book, her memoir, The Examinations of Anne Askew. Quote, After that, I sat two long hours arguing with the Lord Chancellor upon the bare floor. With many flattering words, he tried to persuade me to leave my opinion. I said that I would rather die than break my faith. Her time on the rack, the torture had dislocated Anne's shoulders, hips, elbows, and knees, and following the torture, she lay on the bare floor as the inquisitors continued to pressure her to name names and or confess to her own heresy. When an order came from the king to stop the torture and return her to jail... Anne was sent to a private house to recover from her injuries and offered yet another opportunity to confess. Because the thing is, they didn't want to, they didn't want to torture her. They didn't want to execute her. They just wanted her to name names so they could arrest the queen. But after refusing yet again, she was transferred to Newgate Prison to await execution. It was at this time that she set to work on the writings that would form her book, Examinations, from which we now know these details of her torture. So her execution date was set for July 16th, 1546. Still too injured to walk on her own. And the crime that she was being executed for was, I do believe, just heresy for doing things against the law, like reading the Bible and telling it to people. So still too injured to walk on her own with every movement of her broken body causing her severe pain, Anne was carried in a chair to the stake at which she was to be burned, which is just so gruesome. In another accommodation to her injuries, rather than having to stand, she was chained to another special chair that had been affixed there for her to sit on. One of the bishops delivered a speech encouraging her and the other people being executed for heresy to repent and save themselves, but at this point, none of them took him up on the offer. Like, no one was, they're well past the point of any of them changing their mind. In fact, Anne is said to have paid close attention to his speech and responded audibly when she agreed with what he had to say, as well as when she disagreed, because she was a person who liked to talk and share her opinions. Sort of luckily for her, someone who supported her before they had been brought out to burn, someone had secretly thrown gunpowder onto the wood being used for the burning, which caused an explosion, which made her die faster than slowly burning to death. Apparently the skies clouded over at the moment of her and the other prisoners deaths which some people took as a sign that this martyrdom had displeased god and almost immediately so anne askew who died age 25 became revered among many protestants as a martyr to the faith the evangelical faith her writings were published quickly after her death 
So that's the book, The Examinations of Anne Askew, which lend her even more fame. This book is still available today in various forms, and it not only details her experiences in prison and being tortured, but also describes her opinions about women in society and expands upon her religious convictions. Anne Askew is remembered for her bravery in the face of religious persecution, her devotion to her faith, her independence, and for her strength in standing apart from what was expected of women in her society. Through her writings, we gain fascinating and important details about the daily lives of women in Tudor England, as well as a hint of the great things she may have achieved had her life not been cut short. The sources I used, I meant to say this earlier on, but I didn't, but I got information about Anne Askew from a website called Spartacus Educational, from the Anne Boleyn Files, from the Dangerous Women Project, and from an ebook version of her book, The Examinations of Anne Askew. There's a book called The Queen and the Heretic, subtitle How Two Women Changed the Religion of England by Derek Wilson, and it's a dual biography of Queen Catherine Parr and of Anne Askew, which, if you want to learn more about this whole story and situation, and where this ties into this season's overall theme of the Lady Jane Grey of it all. So she, Anne Askew, died in 1546, which at which point Lady Jane Grey was 11 years old and just a few years away from her weird nine-day queen scenario that we're going to get to. Lady Jane Grey was for a time lived in the household of Catherine Parr, probably would have met Catherine Willoughby, and she would have known at this point about Anne Askew, who, as, as I said a few minutes ago, like instantaneously became a revered Protestant martyr and saint. And when we get to Jane Grey and her personality and her behavior and how she handled herself after she was arrested, I think the influence and seeing Anne Askew as a role model seems kind of quite plausible for her. And now it's time. This is a weird one. Scandalous scale for Anne Askew now. So as I think I reframed this last time as well. So for other people's scandaliciousness we're looking at, did they murder somebody? Did they perpetuate a jewel heist? Like what's the juiciness of the scandals in which they were caught up in? And often I'm thinking of that as like to me, like what seems exciting to me. But for Anne Askew and for some of the other people this season, I think we need to also consider how scandalous was this to everybody else at the time. And at the time, the fact that she petitioned her own husband for divorce was super scandalous. The fact that she um, memorized the Bible and then would tell it to people because it was illegal for other people to read it, super scandalous. Like she was arrested and burned at the stake slash exploded for all this, these actions. Like these were super scandalous things to people in the era and time in which she was living. And she would have known that these things were scandalous and she still did it because that was her commitment to her beliefs. So I am going to give her, with all that in mind, I'm going to give her an eight for scandaliciousness. Seems high, but remember she was killed for this. So it's really scandalous to the people who disagreed with her. In terms of scheminess, so again, we're not thinking about like, how is she at putting together this murder plot or this jewel theft or whatever. This is just kind of about how much did she take control of her own life and actions and come up with plans and do them. 
Now, what we know about her is that she came up with a method to hopefully divorce her husband. She decided to go talk to the to the king about it. She seemed to have helped arrange her own meeting with him. And then probably just a hundred little schemes of meeting up with the, the Reformation Renaissance Girl Squad and other groups, you know, book clubs and things to talk about religious matters. Like she would have had to outsmart a spy. Like I'm sure there's scheminess. We just don't know what the schemes were. And since we don't know what the schemes were, and I don't know, like would a schemier person have broken out of jail? Anyway, I'm going to give her a six for scheminess because certainly she had plans and she saw them through, but it's not, we just don't have a lot of examples for her. Her significance, this is another interesting one, because her significance to, for instance, well, I mean, the title of that book, like how her life and death really helped develop the evangelical faith, um, how it sort of kept, kept that going how it gave hope to other people, how Lady Jane Grey followed her example. And then even just being a woman who wrote these memoirs, so her significance just as a person who wrote this first-person narrative about her life, that's significant. This is, I'm giving her a seven for significance, but these are like, the reasons are so different from why I give people scores like this in other contexts. The sexism bonus. So it sucks that... She had to marry this Catholic douchebag because her sister died and she like inherited the betrothal. That's some bullshit. Otherwise, I mean, there's like the regular bullshit she had to put up with, obviously, but it wasn't like the main thing about her that sort of defines her life is her faith and her religion. And that was sort of outside of her, her sex, I think. So I think a five for sexism. And I forgot to mention this when I was talking about her. So I'll talk about it just quickly while I'm adding these up. But apparently when she was married to Thomas, they had some children, but then you just stop hearing about the children. So presumably they, like so many children in so many of these stories, died at some sort of young age. And she was just 20 when she when they broke up and she tried to leave him. So I'm not sure at what point the children died, but that sort of gets bypassed by people like even me just now looking at at her whole life. But I think that's probably a crucial part of her whole story. There's this misconception that because a lot of children died young because of lack of healthcare and medicine and understanding of science people had a lot of children in this era and lots of historical eras people just had a lot of children because partially because they knew that there was a high child mortality rate and they wanted to make sure that some children would survive but that doesn't mean that when the children died that people were like okay there goes another one whatever we have 10 other kids that's fine like that was still devastating to somebody to lose a child it's my metaphor will be like if I was walking down the street and somebody punched me in the stomach, that would hurt. And if I walked down the street further and someone else punched me in the stomach, like that would also hurt. And if someone punched me in the stomach, a thir- like every time they punched me in the stomach, that would hurt, even though it had happened to me before. So I do think that perhaps part of the reason why she was so 
strong and so assured in her faith was maybe because that had helped see her through well this unhappy marriage situation and then also through the death of her children that's my theory so her total is 26 which so she's the 19th person on the scandalous scale so it's really expansive the scandalous scale so she's one point above Catherine Willoughby actually and towards the bottom she's fifth from the bottom but I mean again like we're looking at different things and her the people who are at the top of the scale are just people who have top marks in every category and she had high marks in scandaliciousness um and even in the significance but the other ones were less so but it's not a competition it's just kind of seeing just a nice way to wrap things up and see how everybody compares if we measured her on four different things she would have been higher i i always feel like apologizing to people when their scores aren't high on the scandalous scale, but I think Anne Askey would not want to be, well, frankly, I don't think she'd want to be in a scandalous scale at all, but I think that she wouldn't want to be at the top of it. So just a few closing remarks. So you can follow me slash this podcast or on Instagram at vulgar history pod on Twitter at vulgar history. My writing is at annfosterwriter.com, which is where you can find Uh, A lot of the longer essays about the people who we talk about on this podcast. I have a Patreon if you want to support to help me build up a little fund to buy more books to research with slash one day maybe get an editor for this podcast. Uh, You can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Anne Foster Writer. And that is where there's also some Patreon only mini podcasts called So This Asshole where I talk about men who suck. So that's on Patreon. And there's merch. All new merch for season three is all set up uh, in our shop on Teespring. The link is in the show notes, but it's also at teespring.com slash stores slash vulgar history. I'm doing my best to have a new pattern or new design per each episode this season. So I know for sure already there's the Renaissance Reformation Girl Squad official t-shirt. It is pink and gorgeous. And some other really cute things there and oh yeah and then also this link is in the show notes too but i'm maintaining a list at bookshop.org which is a great website where you can buy books online and the money goes towards independent bookstores and there's a list there of all the books that i've mentioned on this podcast the ones that i look at for research and also just ones that i recommend in general so that's at bookshop.org slash list slash vulgar history recommends with dashes in between So my name is Ann Foster. This is the Vulgar History Podcast. I'll talk to you next time. And I think you know what we say this season, which is mask on, tits out. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.